0: Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia and now available on iTunes. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and today, part two of our journalism and media episode. Last week, we spoke about traditional media, about the old guard, places like the New York Times and the Globe and Mail but this week we'll be looking forward. We'll be discussing new technologies like social media and how that affects the manner in which we receive our news and the quality of the news itself. I had the special privilege to catch Ethan Zuckerman before he went on stage to speak for the second annual Vancouver Human Rights Lecture. I also invited Alfred Hermida from the University of British Columbia School of Journalism. These are two real social media experts, so I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation.
1: Forward to Ethan's talk this evening at the Chan Centre. Hopefully, we'll have a big turnout and some very good questions. I should warn you that sometimes when Vancouverites come and ask a question, they don't so much ask a question as make a statement.
2: (laughs) I often uh, ask people, when they're asking a question, I, 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 I sometimes remind people that, that a question uh, ends with an interrogative statement and sometimes with an, uh, a slight raise in pitch of the voice afterwards, sort of like this. Um, I'm mostly worried about the fact that uh, after the football game this afternoon and the Canucks game this evening, I'm not really sure that we're going to be able to draw the sort of audience one might hope I, for on sure a different sort of we're evening. I'm
1: not to the same yeah, audience no. as Grey Cup fans and Canuck fans. Well,
2: that's an interesting question. I, uh, it's probably all for the best since I do, in fact, teach in Boston that we don't have uh, too, too many hockey fans <laughs> here, although I should be yes. very clear I am not, in fact, a Bostonian.
0: <laughs> all right, guys. Um, welcome back to the Terry Project podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I have the very special pri- privilege today, but... Uh, to be joined by two uh, veritable social media gurus, Ethan Zuckerman from MIT and Alfred Hermedia here from UBC Journalism. A while back, I was thinking of giving a uh, a TED Talk on social media uh, and activism, and all the smart people I talked to about it said you have to speak to Alfred Hermedia. He knows everything. He is the guy. So, Alfred, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here,
0: uh, Ethan. You work at. Uh, at MIT. Can you explain a little bit about what you study there?
2: Sure. I've just taken over uh, directorship of the Center for Civic Media. Uh, Center for Civic Media looks at the intersection between social and participatory media and uh, civic life, uh, activism, change, involvement in government, uh, in, involvement in uh, society as a whole.
0: Ethan is giving a talk today at the Chan Center called um, Cute Cats in the Arab Spring. So, Ethan, we'll start with you. In your TED Talk, you, s- you spoke about a sort of digital utopianism. Um, and Im- we have this imagined cosmopolitanism where we think everyone is connected to the ideas that matter and the cultures they're not usually exposed to. How has your research um, contradicted or maybe complicated this prevailing image of the web?
2: Well, what I've tried to do is take seriously this notion that the Internet could be this great connective tissue that holds us all together. And we have moments of this where people use the Internet uh, to pay attention to people uh, in far distant places. Uh, one example of this might be in the state of the U.S. state of Wisconsin, um, when people were organizing pro-labor protests against uh, uh, Scott Walker, the governor there, you saw people around the world uh, get together and, and buy pizza uh, for the demonstrators there, and so organized themselves to put money together and, and, and buy food to, to feed the protesters. And That was sort of a wonderful reminder of this idea that you can use this technology to sort of cr- cut across nations and borders and cultures, Most of my research makes the case that that doesn't happen very often and that we sort of fool ourselves a lot of times into thinking that happens. Um, So I look right now and I see a lot of people involved with the Occupy movement um, looking for solidarity uh, with Tahrir Square in Egypt. And I think a lot of the time uh, there's pretty bad misunderstandings of, uh, Mm -hmm. of what each of those movements is pushing for and whether in fact that solidarity is real or not. A lot of what I try to warn people about is this idea that we can fool ourselves into thinking that just because we have access to information from all over the world that we really understand what's going on, that we're really getting a thorough perspective and that we're really having a dialogue, to get that sort of dialogue requires a whole lot of work and a whole lot of effort.
0: Um, Can you speak about something that Eli Parzer uh, refers to as filter bubbles, which you referenced in your TED Talk? our social media bubbles tend to be culturally closed. That's the argument that he makes because these algorithms connect us to the people that we're already agreeing with. Um, How can social media um, be reimagined in a way that promotes cultural pluralism rather than sort of narrows our view of
2: things? So Eli's got a a very good new book, The Filter Bubble, that um, makes, I think, perhaps too narrow a case, And what he basically argues is tools like Facebook uh, try to filter our set of friends so that we're really hearing from the ones who we agree with, we share political uh, biases with. But this isn't really a technical problem. This is really a human problem. Humans have a very strong tendency to um, flock together based on sometimes very superficial similarities. Um, Social scientists refer to this as homophily, and it's an amazingly powerful force. If you look at how people organize themselves in society, people will find uh, the smallest possible similarities uh, and, and will align themselves based on it. Uh, people will befriend each other based on the fact that they have the same first letter in their first <laughs> names. So the danger is not just that Facebook connects me with the like-minded. It's that I'm connected with the like-minded um, throughout all of my life. Where Facebook gets more powerful in this is that we have a real shift in how people are getting information. Fewer people, particularly fewer young people, are reading newspapers or watching television newscasts where you have sort of the opportunity to serendipitously stumble on something that you might need to know but didn't know you were interested in. If you're getting your information mostly through your friends, the danger is you're going to know what your friends know but you're also going to not know what your friends don't know. If we were going to approach this problem from a social media standpoint, we might want to start building social media tools that help us stumble onto the unexpected. And one thing we might do is we might look at what we're looking at look at what our friends are looking at, and then figure out how can we look a couple of steps further out? How can we listen to some of the opinions and some of the perspectives from people who are coming from a different background than we're coming from?
1: I have to take issue with some of what Ethan said there, because one of my research areas is social media, particularly from an audience point of view. And we went out and asked 1,600 Canadians about their news habits, 1,000 of them social media users. And the most surprising thing we found was that a heavy social media user is just as likely to go to a newspaper website, to a TV website, to a radio website, to Google News as the average online news consumer. So, in fact, these heavy social media users, people who were on social media several times a day, are not shunning traditional media, mm-hmm. but actually they're still as likely to use it as somebody who never goes on Facebook. And in fact, the differences that emerged with average news consumer was the social media user was far more likely to go to an international website, to go to an independent blogger, to actually use a more variety of sources. And when we looked at this, we were surprised because I was expecting to find this idea that if somebody's a heavy social media user, they would be far less likely to go to a traditional media website. And in fact, quite the opposite. The patterns are essentially identical. And what these results suggest is that actually these heavy social media users, when it comes to news, if anything, they're better informed because they're accessing a broader range of sources. Ethan,
0: is is social media broadening our scope and uh, giving us access to news?
1: So the argument that I'm making is actually
2: not at all inconsistent with Alfred's findings, but it has to do with how people read those sources. So um, it's not actually surprising that via social media you might get a, a, a pointer to The Guardian or The Independent in the UK. Or um, The question is, how are you reading those things? Um, I made reference to newspapers and to television broadcasts for a very specific reason, which is both those media offer sort of a breadth of what's being covered in a format that sort of forces you to encounter some of it. And that's an editorial function, that comes into play on someone laying out the front page of a newspaper. When someone lays out the front page of the newspaper, they're trying to say, here's a couple of different things that I really think you should pay some attention to. The danger in a social media universe is that it's quite possible to get links all over the world that are coming from a very similar ideological point of view that are focused on a particular topic that you're paying attention to would be entirely consistent with the readings that that you're getting in in your survey but doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're not getting a filter bubble you may be getting a deeply international but also uh deeply biased based on on who you're getting in in a social media setting
1: i think one of the issues here is this assumption of serendipity through traditional media yeah. Because we need to recognize that when you look at the global Mail front page, that has been decided by a certain group of people who have a certain view of the world, who have a certain view of deciding what is important. So, actually, uh, in terms of serendipity, well, yes, if... This is the group of people who decide what is important. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think there's been this assumption that somehow, you know, you will stumble across things in the newspaper and you will read it. Well, yes, but again, the choices are very limited and subject to certainly the editorial composition of that newspaper. Mm -hmm. Plus, what tends to happen is people tend to read a newspaper they agree with Mm -hmm. the you know, I'm a Guardian reader, I tend not to read The Times or The Telegraph in the UK. Why? Because I identify with The Guardian as a sort of liberal newspaper. So, in fact, I think there's sort of a false dichotomy here, because it's not really about the tools, it's not about the technology, it's about our behaviour. What we tend to do, like you said, Ethan, we will try to find commonalities with other people. We will look for media that we have some common ground with. So,
0: Ethan, do you feel that the, um, the social network is a better curator than the newspaper editor?
2: I, I'm trying very hard not to argue for either as an ideal curator. Exactly. A- and I, I, I do not want to be pushed in the corner of somehow defending the systematic biases of, of traditional newspapers. What I am trying to suggest is that what's happened as we've built out social media is that we have built out the ability to hear from your friends. And that's a very powerful thing in the sense that it it allows you to to stay in touch with people. It allows you certain types of conversation. It can be very good for certain types of organizing. One of the ways in, in which the front page of a newspaper is designed is to try to say, here's what you care about and here's what you don't care about and should pay attention to as well. What I would end up suggesting is that when you start building new systems to curate media you need to be sensitive to the shortcomings of all of those different systems. You need to be very sensitive to the shortcomings of the traditional press. Much of my academic work has been on trying to show the limitations and the biases of traditional press. But social media is not a cure-all. You end up with a whole other set of limitations that you have to find ways to compensate for. All I've really been trying to do in my work for the last couple of years is to say... Let's take a very critical look at what these tools do well and poorly. Mm-hmm. Let's take a close look at, at what we think we want to be getting. Lately, I've been, I've been urging people to, to track their media diets, You know, whether that's you know, watching what you look at in your web browser through a tool like RescueTime uh, to see what websites you look at and don't look at, or whether it's, it's literally just writing it down and saying... Are you happy with your inputs? Are you happy with what you're getting? I've yet to find anyone who's done that experiment who's come <laughs> out of it and said, yes, I'm getting a good view of the world. Almost everybody comes out of it and says, wait a second, I spend way too much time looking at football, uh, which is, is, is my
1: particular problem. on And,
2: and all, I'm, I, all I'm looking to do is get people to take that close look and then think about how we would engineer these systems differently.
1: and yeah, I think like part of that is that... When we have new communication tools, there is this sort of rhetoric and utopian rhetoric that somehow this is going to be so much better than what we had before. Mm. And the response of traditional media or the media that came before is, no, it's so much worse. You have this with newspapers, radio, television. You know, TV when it came was the devil. You know, if you talk to anyone in newspapers, because how could they possibly do the in-depth stuff we do? You know, you have to have pictures. How superficial is that? So... (laughs) meanwhile in television you're thinking wow we can have pictures isn't that amazing? And we, we see the same kind of processes over and over again with new communication technologies. That we get excited, we get thinking, "Wow, this is remarkable." We see some of the potential there, and then make this leap into thinking, "Oh, that will solve these problems that we've had with forms of media."
0: So, in this conversation already, we've we've talked about a lot of traditional media papers, uh, like the Guardian. And so, it's true that a lot of the um, the news that we consume on social media is from the old guard. And I wanted to get a sense from you guys how has or how can social media transform traditional media?
2: So I spend a lot of time these days talking about media as an ecosystem. And what I mean by that is you will often have stories that are not taking place in parts of the world where traditional media is paying a lot of attention. So I'm going to talk tonight quite a bit about um, the revolution in Tunisia earlier this year. And there was really no meaningful international media presence in that country. And and because that country's media was aggressively censored, there was basically no independent media in that country at all. The ways in which we understood how that revolution started to unfold were entirely via social media. But the ways in which that revolution started having an impact, not just on Tunisians, but on Egyptians and around the globe, was when it crossed from social media into mainstream media and Mm -hmm. suddenly became accessible to the rest of the world. The reason we've heard about Tunisia... Is that Egyptians heard about Tunisia? The reasons Egyptians heard about Tunisia were not Facebook. It was Al Jazeera picking up that story and running with it. And so I think a lot of the time we would really benefit from thinking about social media as an input into broadcast media rather than it's an it's an entirely separate thing.
1: I think this is the the world of media we live now. Um, and now it's it's less that one will replace the other. What tends to happen with forms of communication is they evolve into different ways. So AM, when FM came along, AM became talk radio because music was so much better quality on FM. AM radio didn't die, it just evolved into something else. We're seeing that happen with the daily newspaper, the print newspaper. The Guardian has found that most of its readers of its print edition read it in the evening so it's already it's a, it's 24 hours old by the time they read it so they're obviously not reading it for news as in what's just happened they want a different experience so we see that that the print format will evolve into something else
2: and, and we we're even seeing that 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 evolution happened very quickly in digital media. Um, When weblogs started uh, in the the late 1990s, the early 2000s, they were designed to be very fast, very rapid-moving. They were usually just a URL or a pointer to something. Um, Guys like Dave Warner came along and started writing long-form essays within it. Now blogs are an essay format. Uh, they're people's op-eds, they're people's unpublished academic papers, and now that fast-moving format has moved to the Facebook status update or the Twitter update, this is one of these very strange things. There are media that, that die. You know, we're, we're not talking about MySpace anymore. Uh, or about Friendster, sort of major social media platforms. But then there's also media that turn out to be very, very powerful, and they either survive as is, or the use case changes as people figure out what they're really good for.
0: I just want to shift to to social media and social activism. Um, Ethan, what is the cute cat theory of social activism?
2: Well, the cute cat theory basically comes down to understanding what the web is really for. And the web, when it was invented uh, in the early 1990s, was designed to help physicists share research papers. Uh, But then the web was completely reinvented in the late 1990s by people who were starting dot-com businesses, And when we rebuilt the web, Web 2.0, instead of the late 1990s, early 2000, the idea was that the web was to share cute photos of cats. And much of the tools and the infrastructure that make Web 2.0 possible are optimized for this critical cute cat sharing task. Um, So when you think about a service like Blogger, or you think about YouTube, or you think about Flickr, All of those are cute cat technologies. What they're really good for is letting people who don't have much technical knowledge produce content that can be shared by a lot of people. That's often light, funny, you know, we might say viral if I can use air quotes on a podcast. The thing is, if you're going to use social media technology as an activist, these are the most powerful tools you have access to for a bunch of reasons. They're easier to use. People are already using them, so convincing an activist, no, come use my special platform, is not particularly helpful. But they also have some really critical technical capabilities. It turns out it's hard for governments to censor these cute cat platforms, because even if all you're trying to do is silence one piece of speech, you know, an anti-government video in Turkey, if you have to block YouTube to do it, you cause an enormous amount of collateral damage, and you really reveal yourself as a government censor. And now more recently, these platforms are really powerful because one of the ways in which people try to control speech is through denial-of-service attacks, where people literally go out and try to swamp someone's web server to the point where it's not useful anymore. These social media platforms are very resistant and very resilient in the face of those attacks. So really the theory was a theory for activists to sort of say, you know, yeah, sure, be concerned with encryption, be concerned with having your super secret, you know, movement building technology, but get Facebook right, get YouTube right, it may be the most powerful tool you
1: have. And what's interesting with these technologies is how we appropriate them for our own purposes. Facebook was not created to allow revolutionaries to mm-hmm. It was to share pictures of cats. But we will take these technologies and use them in ways that we find useful to ourselves. And this is what we see with social media. And perhaps it's, uh, it's a form of media that we can actually appropriate and we can turn to use for our own purposes because of the properties of that media, the fact it's it's open in a sense that we don't have to have an expensive printing press or, or a studio like this to create a podcast. The fact that it's distributed, it's networked, it has a ready-built capacity there that we can appropriate for our own purposes.
0: Um, Gladwell wrote a piece in, in The New Yorker discussing how some of the romantic notions of social media to democratize were, were somewhat naive. Um, can, can either of you speak to maybe some of the ways that we overestimate social media's power, Place too much emphasis in the technology rather than uh, the people themselves
2: that wasn 't Gra- gladwell 's best piece um, he 's just flat out wrong in in much of it and and we could go into it, but it, it would take sort of too much time. <laughs> what he basically does is is make an argument that um, the Internet doesn't let you form real, deep, and lasting relationships, that you form sort of lighter, more superficial relationships, and that those lighter and more superficial relationships don't lead to activism. That sort of falls apart if you even poke at it a little bit. It's very, very hard to get, um, you know, people to to occupy Tahrir Square if you're only reaching your nearest and dearest, right? You know, uh, revolutions actually are about reaching broader networks. Where... He's got some validity. Is largely where he's leaning on the work of uh, my friend and colleague, Evgeny Morozov, who's a a Belarusian uh, social commentator, who basically has been warning that we're overestimating the power of online activism. He uses this wonderful term, slacktivism, where he says, Mm -hmm. you know, people who are just signing Facebook petitions and not doing anything in the real world, they're just fooling themselves. He's probably not wrong. I think where he's a little short-sighted and more than a little cynical is that it's quite possible that that online activity can connect to real-world activity. And to the extent that online activity is is turning into real-world activity or is documenting real-world activity, which I think is a really critical piece of this, uh, there are ways in which social media is a very, very powerful force within this space. No one wants to make the case that you know Facebook... Overthrew Tunisia. Uh, I'm going to try to make a pretty strong case tonight that it's hard to imagine Tunisia getting overthrown without Facebook. However, that doesn't mean that Facebook overthrows Tunisia. And it doesn't mean that, you know, getting on Facebook and saying, I support Occupy Vancouver is the same thing as either going down and supporting Occupy Vancouver or doing something potentially more useful or more helpful and more directly connected to working on issues of social justice and inequality.
1: I think one way to think about it is, I was a correspondent in Tunisia in the early 90s for the BBC. It was very, it was impossible to organize. Uh, There were no structures there, there was no civil society, there was no NGO, very repressive regime. Essentially all the power rests in the established institutions. What social media does is actually, if you want to organize, it starts, starts you off in credit. In the real world, you're in debit because the people you're trying to overthrow already have the structures, already have the party uh, structure, they have the police, they have the institutions there. Through social networking tools, you already have a ready-made network that people can plug into. So from the start, you start off in credit. Now, it doesn't mean you necessarily will succeed, but you don't have the same situation where you are at such a disadvantage. Um in trying to organize something in the real world. The challenge, as Ethan has pointed out, is taking that activity and those connections you create online and transferring them into action that ad- achieves some objective.
0: Alfred, you've been you've been around the world covering um, international uh, political issues. Have you noticed a difference in how um, social media is looked at through different political and cultural contexts?
1: Well, um, for a book... Uh, came out the sea on participatory journalism. We looked at um, newsrooms in 10 Western liberal democracies and how the journalists there viewed participation. And what's remarkable is that journalists in Canada, the US, the UK, France, Croatia, Spain, Israel, all over the world really view participatory tools much the same way, that they don't really see the audience as a participant in the journalistic process, but rather as a source for eyewitness reports, for videos, for photos which they supply to the newsroom, and then they see the audience as discussing the work the journalist has produced. Broadly speaking, that's how participation is viewed. Very much still keeping the idea of the newsroom as this is fortress journalism, this is what we do, this is not what you do. Now, there are exceptions. You know, CBC is doing some work there, The Guardian's doing some work there, The New York Times is doing work there, and others are, trying to move beyond just saying to the audience, send us your photos of cute cats and we'll post them on our website, or we've published an article, what do you think about this? And actually involve them far more in the news process and deciding what makes the news, whose voices should be heard in the news, and how do we share this with the world?
2: I'll be interested to see whether um, NPR's experiment with Andy Carvin Uh, has a shift on all of this. Uh, Carvin is not a capital-J journalist. He's a a social media guy who's ended up working for a journalistic organization. And he's become probably the best-known exemplar of this model of journalist as curator uh where Andy's way of reporting is literally to sit and manage tens of thousands of Twitter feeds and to try to to sort through them and to try to figure out if you can get an accurate picture or, or not an accurate picture, but a a more nuanced, more multifaceted picture. Uh and it's been fascinating this year. He he NPR made a, a, a wonderful decision, which is they hired uh Ahmed Al Omran, who is um one of the top Saudi bloggers. Uh, to come and sort of sit next to Andy. And, and the two of them together, you know, now have sort of command over English, French, and Arabic and, and are able to, to have this sort of amazing view. Um, I've been glued to Andy for the last couple of hours watching what's going on in Egypt today. This has been uh, an incredibly bloody and ugly day in Tahrir and, and watching how they're able to, to cover the story despite the fact that neither of them is currently on the ground.
1: And, and in a way, this is something journalists have always done talk to lots of people, gather information. But usually what happens is we talk to lots of people, write it in our notebook, and a small part of that actually gets put into a package that gets delivered the next day to your doorstep. What we're seeing here is far more in a sense journalism as processed, journalism turned inside out, where the way you're reporting is happening transparently that you're facilitating the news. As news comes into you, you're sharing it with the audience, you're engaging in conversation, you're trying to verify things as they come in, which always used to happen, but we never saw it because it always mm. happened within a newsroom.
0: Mm. And so just to end off, guys, we have a couple of minutes. Um, where do we see all these technologies going? I know it's always hard to predict with um, social media, but uh, what, mo- what most encourages you and what do you see on the horizon?
2: I'm incredibly encouraged by the notion that whether it's the Occupy movement, whether it's kids in Syria trying to find a way to protest against incredible repression, um, that people are finding ways to document their own movements. And what I'm hopeful for is that we get over this older paradigm of journalism is what journalists do, and get into this curatorial paradigm where it gets easier to pay attention to stories that don't make the media narrative. For me, one of the heartbreaks of earlier this year um, was student protests in Gabon, and they were thoroughly influenced by Tunisia. They watched the events in Tunisia, uh, you saw uh, Gabonese students holding up banners that said they did it with Ben Ali, we can do it with Bongo. And the answer was they couldn't. And one of the reasons they couldn't is that the global media paid no attention to them, the government's violent crackdown on the protests got no international attention, and the whole world wasn't watching. We're reaching this point, coming back to the opening questions you asked on digital cosmopolitanism, where it's possible for us to pay attention, really, to, to all different parts of the globe, and to shift our focus very quickly. The question is whether we will. Uh, are we willing to take that responsibility? Are we willing to do that hard work to pay attention to the people all over the world who are standing up and raising their voices?
1: To pick up on that, the, the big shift has been participatory tools, the idea that journalism, producing media was hard, was expensive. You needed facilities. Now those participation tools are everywhere. But the thing is, it's moving beyond the fact that yes, people can upload a video to YouTube, but if nobody is watching, what impact it does have? So moving beyond thinking, isn't it great that anybody can report on what's happening around them? And really thinking that now we're moving to a stage of attention. How do we focus attention and how do we grab people's attention and draw it to important issues, things that are being reported because there's somebody there who's shooting it on their cell phone and they're posting it to YouTube. The material is there. We're finding a ways of accepting that is already happening. How do we then bring those voices to the fore? Yeah, news isn't scarce, attention is.
0: So we, we, have, the, um, we have the tools, we
2: have the infrastructure. Now it's just up to us, I guess. Great. Thanks so much.